Well, we're continuing to look at the essentials of Christian maturity. And we've been talking about how once you're saved, you're washed, you're cleansed, and some people think that that's it. But that's just the beginning. Just like a marriage is just the beginning. Uh, You don't marry somebody and then just go back to your own house. Instead, you start a new life together. And things are different from that point on. You establish a new household, as we've looked in the past, with new rules and new roles. And uh, instead of just taking your old rules and roles with you, uh, that the other person might not know and causing conflict. Uh, instead, you start out together as a team. And uh, it's so it is with the Christian faith. And you uh, start out with this clean slate. And John Wesley thought that he was never going to sin anymore. And he started telling people, I'm done with sin. And then something happened. He realized that Sin had not been completely eliminated from his life. It had just been kind of stunned for a while. But then all of a sudden, old habits, old reactions and different things like that came out. And he realized that he wasn't perfect yet. And so this is where we Methodists came up with the term. And he came up with the term of moving on to perfection. As long as you're giving as much of yourself uh, to uh, uh, as uh, as you know, give as much of yourself as you know to as much of God as you understand, you're in the right spot. But he's going to continually show you things that you couldn't see before you got over this hurdle or over this hill. You couldn't see that there were other things that still needed working on. And so it is that we move on to perfection. And that word uh, that we use uh, is sanctification, being made holy, being made right with God. And uh, one of the main uh, scriptures that we've been looking at is Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. Pursue peace <coughs> with all men. Without which, pursue peace with all men and sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. So what I want to be talking to you about today is the fact, and and next Sunday as well, this is just going to be an introduction uh, this Sunday, uh, is to the, you know, our homes are the proving ground of our faith. If you're not being Christian to your husband and your wife and to your kids and to your parents and to your laws and in-laws, uh, is you're not if you're not being Christian in your relationships with those people and with your brothers and sisters, you hadn't gotten started yet because Christianity is not just a mask that you put on in front of other people. Jesus makes it makes it clear it's something that li- is lived from the heart. 
And it's hard to wear a mask at home. You got to take that mask off sometime. And that's where the real you is going to be seen. And that's where you can see the real you. And so this is what we've been talking about. Sanctification basically is trying to maintain peace with God, isn't it? Trying to uh, do our best to find out what it is that pleases him and to do that for him. In fact, uh, uh, anyway, I want to just move on today. I'm going to be uh, starting out by just laying some foundation on what we're going to really dig into this next week. And that is uh, how to experience the power of God in your relationships. And uh, it begins as you act in faith. Now, Jesus sets an example for us by washing his disciples' feet. And he said, you've seen what I've done. You call me Lord and you do so rightly. Uh, but he said, the disciples, not above the teacher. The teacher's not above the disciple. And uh, he goes on and he tells them that we ought to be washing each other's feet all the way around. And so uh, as, uh, as we look at this, even this foot washing begins in the home uh, between husband and wife and children. Uh, then it moves on to the workplace and then to everywhere else. You see, your faith is actuated and the Holy Spirit's power is manifested as you act in faith. After Jesus uh, has washed his disciples' feet and explained what he had done, he said, you do well if you'll do this. That's basically what he's saying. You need to do what I'm telling you to do. And so uh, there's another place in John 14 in the next chapter. He'll say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And there's another place just a little bit uh, uh, distant from this where he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'll love you and my father will love you. And uh, we will come and make our abode in you. And one of the most wonderful things about the Christian faith is, you see, it's not just adhering to a set of principles. That's what a lot of people think the Christian faith is. And you can put it in theological terms, but Christian faith is a life that's to be lived. It's not a set of principles. It is personal. It is so personal. It's personal between you and God, and it's personal between you and every person that's around you. 
And it's not trying to just live up and adhere to a, a, a set of doctrine. It's living the life that you know God created you to live and that he reveals that he wants you to live. And so uh, uh, it, it all begins in the home. Now, how many of you have seen the movie, The Princess Bride? Let's see your hands. Okay. All right. About 30% have seen it. Okay. And, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's really neat. Uh, Elon Musk says this is the greatest movie of all time. And I must on this agree with Elon Musk. It is a tremendous movie. And you may not have noticed the theological undertones of this movie. There's a lot of wisdom that's, that's hidden in there. And I don't know if you've ever noticed how much Wesley, the main character, they're Wesley and Buttercup, Princess Buttercup. Those are the two main characters. Wesley, or Wesley, he's a Christ figure. Have you ever noticed that? And as you look at Wesley and his interaction with Buttercup, Princess Buttercup, excuse me, uh, you can see just one of the greatest examples of prevenient grace that you've ever seen. You know, there's prevenient grace, which is God's action in your life before you ever really get to know him. That time whenever you don't know him, but he knows you and he loves you and he's trying to get your attention. He taps you on the shoulder. He blesses you. He just sends little love notes to you all the time. And uh, he tries to get your attention. So there's prevenient grace. And then finally, we come to know him and we start to love in each other. And then justifying grace is whatever we receive the love that he offers and love him back. And, uh, and then sanctification is that moment when you make it official, like a wedding in a church where you've said your vows to each other and you're going to be together from that point on. And then you live the rest of your life in sanctifying grace, moving on together, you and your Lord in this world uh, together. And so prevenient grace. Wesley uh, is a farm boy. Princess Buttercup is obviously a princess. And uh, so many times Wesley winds up having to do things for Princess Buttercup. And whenever the first time, there's only four times, there's, there's six times when the words, as you wish, are used. The first time we see it is whenever Princess Buttercup says, Wesley, do so and so. And does it in a haughty and commanding, ugly sort of way, really. And he says, as you wish. And he does it. The next time she says, Wesley, do so and so. Please. Her heart is softening toward Wesley. And then the third time, She basically asks him to do something. 
And he very lovingly says, as you wish. And it's at that moment that you can tell that Wesley and Princess Buttercup, Buttercup are in love. Okay. There's one other time. The last time you see them say that you hear this phrase is he <clears throat> has disappeared. She thinks he's dead and he's now uh, the dread pirate Roberts. And uh, they are talking and uh, he has rescued Princess Buttercup. They're having a conversation and she gets mad and she pushes him off a hill. And as said, she says something, I can't remember what she said. Some of y'all probably quote it, but as she pushes him off the hill and says something. And as he's rolling down the hill, he says, as you wish. <laughs> and it's at that moment when she is really the ugliest to him, when she recognizes him the least, that she recognizes this is her love. Isn't that a good sign, a good example of prevenient grace? That's the way it worked in my life. He blessed me when I didn't know him. He blessed me when I thought I knew him. And he blessed me more when I wasn't even sure he was there. And whenever I finally just cried out, Jesus save me, he was right there. And in essence, he said, as you wish. And he filled me with his love. And I've not been the same since. I've had to grow tremendously, as Sharon can attest. I mean, I had such a long way to go. But that was the beginning. As I learned to say back to the Lord, as you wish. Well, The grandfather is the one that explains to the uh, little uh, grandson that he's telling the story to. Every time that Wesley says, as you wish, what he's really saying is, I love you. James says in James 2.20, but are you willing to recognize you foolish person? that faith without works is useless. This is kind of a reiteration of what Jesus said whenever he said, if you understand what I'm saying and do it, you'll be doing well. And there are different places where uh, Jesus makes it clear that we're supposed to be doing what we know he wants us to do. And every time we do what he has told us to do and we know to do. We're saying with our lives, as you wish. You see, you demonstrate your love to him. Wesley, he would say, as you wish, meaning I'm going to obey you. But he also, it also meant I love you. And then he did it. And the action is what really demonstrated his love. And somehow that gets lost in interpretation 
when it comes, whenever Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I told you to do. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll say as you wish with your mouth and with your actions. And what we're going to be looking at in depth this next week is how to please God in your relationships. We've been going through this backwards, as I've said all along. We've looked at anger. We've looked at bitterness. And and this is just it. One of the greatest sources of bitterness in, in couples is because they get things backward. They want people to meet they, their needs. And I get the impression sometimes that people get married in order to get their needs met. And then they are so disappointed when the person doesn't meet their needs. And so then they spend their married life trying to make that other person meet their needs. And uh, so many times those needs, and nobody's going to meet all of another person's needs, but that's where the problem comes in. We go into marriage trying to get instead of trying to give. If you love someone, it means you desire the best for them. And you want to supply them with what they need. And uh, so going on down here, uh, Jesus did say, oh, it says this, in, in, in your relationships, we're supposed to be, it's when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, in uh, Ephesians 5.10, Paul tells us that we should be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Where do you learn what is pleasing to the Lord? You learn it from His Word. And so I encourage you, study the Bible. And whenever I say study, I don't mean take a theological microscope and uh, dissect every little thing. That comes in later, uh, whenever you're wanting to really dig in to what's going on. But at first, there's a basic message there that Jesus loves you. And uh, he came to save you from your sin. And so the first thing is, it makes it very clear what sin is and what we're supposed to do about it and what he has already done about it. And so there's all of that right there. And so we should be trying to understand and we can learn from each other because God gives revelation one to the other. And so we learn from each other what is pleasing to the Lord. And so that's where it all begins is in our, in our love relationship with him is learning what is pleasing to the Lord. And then the flip side of that in Ephesians 5.21, Paul tells us that with our brothers and sisters in Christ and in every relationship that we find ourselves in, we are to be subject to one another. Now, in this day and time, we're all trying to uh, not dominate one another, but we're trying to boss one. Look out! You look at all the different people all around. You know, just driving through the parking lot, 
trying to drive in a parking space and somebody gets it before you. Everybody just looking out for number one. I guess that's the best way to put it. And uh, if uh, if that's the case, then everybody winds up bitter with everybody if they're all looking out for number one. But if we're all looking out for each other, it's such a different world. And this is the way it should be at home, if no other place. We and, and and he wants to expand it on into our workplace and into school. Uh, be pleasing to him everywhere you go. I just kind of bring this to a conclusion now today. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed a prayer, and it was an agonizing prayer because he knew. He was getting ready to face a lot of torture, a lot of ridicule. People were going to spit on him. They were going to put a crown of thorns on his head and pound it in. They were going to drive nails through his hands. They were going to pierce his side. The Old Testament tells us he was going to, that all these things were going to happen to him. He knew what he was facing. At one point, he tells his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he prayed and he prayed, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And that was the cup of suffering and death. Obviously, our heavenly father said, son, I wish there was but there's not, you're going to have to go to the cross. At the end of his prayer, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Isn't that just a rephrasing of as you wish? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. A lot of times the things that the Lord wants you to do in this world aren't pleasant. You have to set pride aside in order to uh, tell another person as you wish instead of standing your ground. You see, just as with Wesley, there was, the, there was the speaking as you wish. And then he would do what Princess Buttercup wanted him to do. When it came to Jesus, he said, as you wish, Father. And he went to the cross. There was obedience even to death. And his going to the cross was the biggest way he said to his father, I love you. That's the biggest way. Sometimes we have to die to self in our relationships. And it's whenever you do that, that you're saying to our heavenly father, I love you. It wasn't easy but it was rewarding. In Hebrews 12, 12, 12, 2, it says, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the joy wasn't getting to sit on that throne. That wasn't the joy. The joy came from showing his heavenly father just how deep his love for his heavenly father was. And at the same time, he had the joy of showing to you how much he loved you by meeting your deepest need. And your deepest need is salvation. Your deepest need is to be saved from your sin. He and his heavenly father had huddled before he ever came down. They both loved you. And they knew you were coming even before you made the scene. And they both agreed. Yeah. They're going to need this. And so we're going to do it. And so Jesus came and he died and he rose from the dead. And that put the seal of affirmation on the fact that this statement of love is complete. He made a full and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. And what's really neat is that includes my sin and it includes your sin. Those things you've done and those things you have thought. And he has washed and cleansed. And he did it as he hung there on the cross knowing that you would sometime one day come to a place where you're going to wish that you could be free from your sin and not know how to be free from it and cry out and say, Jesus, save me. And he'll come and say, as you wish. It's been done because it has the As I said, the Christian faith is very personal. And it's when we finally personally appropriate what he did and really hear him say, as you wish, and hear him say, I love you in response to your cry of guilt and shame, that we know that we we really can move on with him. So as you go out into this world this coming week, and even before that, as you get in the car with each other, uh, and as you start to drive down the road together, and in your homes, anytime you start to feel irritated, anytime you start to say something, Any time that there comes that moment 
where something has to be said or done, I encourage, ask yourself, what would Jesus have me do? And you'll know, you'll know. And when you do, say, as you wish, and then do it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.